0: Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Podcast, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Ellen Halliday, Deputy Editor at Prospect Magazine, and today I'm joined by Helen Barnard, Associate Director at the Joseph Rowntree Foundation, and Stu Hennigan, author of the book Ghost Signs, Poverty and the Pandemic, to talk about the cost of living crisis and the prospects that vulnerable people and the charities supporting them face this winter. Last week, inflation hit double figures for the first time in 40 years, while real wages saw their largest drop since records began. A study by the University of York also suggested that more than half of UK households would be in fuel poverty by January. So what does this bleak picture mean for people on the lowest incomes and what should be done to support them? Thanks very much for joining us this morning, Stu and Helen. It's a pleasure to see you both. Helen, first of all, I wondered if you could... Give us a bit of context on how we got to this situation that, you know, we're now also worried about the coming winter. What kind of situation do people on the lowest incomes face?
1: Well, I think if you look back over the last probably decade, really, you can kind of see this coming. So what we were seeing in the years leading up to the pandemic was rising poverty for particular groups, particularly families with children, pensioner poverty started to tick up more disabled people are getting pulled into poverty. But actually, when you look uh, kind of under the bonnet of poverty, as it were, what the most striking thing is actually the rise in the number of people in deep poverty. So people who are in a situation where they are not being able to afford some of the basics of life. So we kind of that's what we had coming up to the pandemic. We then had the pandemic hit. And what we saw then was that the economic and actually the health impacts of the pandemic landed most heavily on those people who were struggling. So they were more likely to lose their jobs, to lose their hours. People on insecure contracts didn't get the protection of furlough often. And of course, people were more likely to get ill and very sadly to die. And what you saw when you kind of what's happening to people's assets over the pandemic, what you saw was that people on the lowest incomes ran down any savings they might have. They often built up debt, whereas actually people on middle and higher incomes economically some of them did very very well so people built up savings because they weren't going out they weren't going you know doing going on holidays and so on and things like house prices went up so asset prices went up so we came out of the pandemic and in a sense we're already going to have what I think people are calling a k-shaped recovery so some people skip out of lockdown with lots of savings back to the restaurants and so on other people come out pretty much on their knees having just about made it through And then we had inflation starting to tick up. And that was happening before the war in Ukraine. It's worth saying this isn't just about the war. This was happening anyway. But then the war turbo boosted it. So what we've got now is really two big things. One is obviously the overall inflation going up, fuel prices going up. But actually, even more importantly, if you look at inflation rates for different groups, inflation is significantly higher for those people at the bottom. So you're kind of looking at, I think the latest predictions is by the end of the year, people on lowest incomes could be facing inflation of 18% at the point at which people on higher incomes are facing inflation of between 11 and 13%. So you've got this cumulative series of blows landing on people, and that just leaves them incredibly exposed to this and to the kind of the harshest forms of debt and hardship that are now landing on people and are going to just get worse over the next year.
0: Why is that, that there's a kind of different rate of inflation experienced by people on the lowest incomes versus basically,
1: incomes? basically, it's about what you spend your money on. So you have, if you imagine the kind of the typical basket of goods that you're buying when you're on a lowest income, as opposed to the typical basket of goods you're buying if you're on a higher income. People on low incomes, the dominant things people spend their money on are food, fuel, housing. Those are the three biggies. And that takes up a large chunk of their budget. Whereas people on higher incomes, food is a pretty small amount of their budget. So is energy bills. So they are spending the money on electronics and leisure and all those things. So actually, if you went back a decade, people on high incomes were facing higher inflation than people on low incomes because it happened that the things they were buying were going up in price faster. What we've got now is the worst thing, which is higher inflation for those at the bottom and the things that are going up are essentials. So doing without them causes real pain whereas not upgrading your phone isn't going to cause you pain.
0: Yeah. And Stu, that sounds like a pretty worrying picture. We ran an an extract from your incredibly powerful book about poverty in Leeds during a pandemic in our June issue. That was based on, I think, nine weeks, kind of an early spring 2020 when you were volunteering in Leeds and you got a sense of the hardship some people were facing then at the beginning of the pandemic. Obviously, a lot's changed since then. But can you tell us a bit about the people that you met at the time and your takeaways from that experience and from your book
2: yeah I think that there were a lot of people that were really really struggling even then I think the kind of one of the one of the things that's become apparent from the reaction to the to the book is that a lot of people were just completely unaware of the extent of the poverty and the actual the levels of deprivation that were already being experienced which was one one of the reasons that the book needed to be written I think to kind of push to, to people that this is actually a real issue and you know to make them aware that it's it's actually happening because I think for a lot of people that they, they just don't recognise that it's there you know they don't interact with these communities and if you don't see it in front of you you can look at statistics maybe in a newspaper article or something but you don't get the kind of concrete reality of it. I mean, even two years ago we were delivering to people who would tell us they were very, very grateful for, for what we'd taken them, but they would say, I don't have enough money to put in the electric meter to cook the pasta that you've that you've brought us or what you know, whatever was in the um whatever was in the food parcels. I mean the actual the physical conditions that a lot of people are living in are just atrocious we visited houses where there wasn't a single pane of intact glass in the building there was no carpets no wallpaper there were bits of the ceiling hanging down mold growing up the walls really really scandalous conditions for anybody to be living in i think it's it's worth mentioning as well that even two years ago a lot of the people that we visited had at least one adult in work i think the the statistics for in-work poverty, I think, are likely to absolutely rocket, or will will be doing so already. And it is quite a bleak picture because when when you look at the communities like like a lot of the ones that I was writing about in the book, you kind of think how can it possibly get any worse for these people when you look at what what they've been forced to to kind of endure already. But it's kind of like Helen said whenever kind of economic things like this the the impacts of it are always on the on the lowest earners and you know it like you said it's the essential stuff that's that's going up people can't do without food they can't do with without heating and and things like that and the they're just going to get squeezed so hard even two years ago as I said people even then were faced with a choice between food or fuel two years down the line that's got you know noticeably worse and it's going to get worse from here before it gets better which is a really really bleak thing to contemplate I think.
0: Is that something that's different about this kind of coming and current crisis Helen this concept of deep poverty that you talked about and also the rate of in work poverty people who have you know have a regular income have are employed but are still facing this kind of bleak choice between heating food or you know potentially unable to afford either of them is that is that something different about this crisis or have we seen that before
1: yeah no I think we we have seen it before so when you look at who's in poverty if you went back 20 30 years and you painted a picture of people in poverty What you'd be painting would be mostly pensioners, older people and families where no one could work. That would be the dominant kind of group. Actually, if you modern day poverty for about at least the last decade or so, modern day poverty looks really different. Modern day poverty is the majority of people in poverty have at least one person in work in the household. Pensioners with the lowest rate of poverty, although it is ticking up now, but they still have the lowest rate of poverty disabled people and carers having high rates of poverty. So I think those, are in a sense, if you look kind of who is most exposed to the next crisis coming down the line, those are the groups. It's families with kids in work and out of work, and it's disabled people and carers primarily. I think there is one thing is that we, JRF, did some work recently delving into deep poverty. And I think that was interesting because I think that, it was possible that deep poverty would look quite different, that, you know, would deep poverty be more about kind of single people with multiple disadvantages, chaotic lives and so on? And those people are in deep poverty and that's not right. But actually, the interesting is deep poverty looks the same as general poverty. It's still the same groups. It's just they're in even worse straits. And I think, you know, we've got to think about... The labour market, what is it about the way the labour market functions that means that work is not providing a reliable route out of poverty for millions of people, millions of workers? What is it about the housing market, which means that the rents people are paying just leaves them without enough money to buy other things? And those are long term problems. So it's not new. But what it means is this crisis is even worse than it would have been because we've left people exposed.
0: And you also recently wrote a piece for us about charities and the kind of organisations like uh, the one that Stuart volunteers for that are going out to try and support people. And you wrote about the pressures that these organisations are also coming under as kind of the net that's to to catch people and help people. Can you kind of explain for us what your concerns are about the pressures they face too?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting, this isn't something that I've heard talked about very much, but I think it is a real kind of unseen looming problem. So when you kind of think about across the country, you've got lots and lots of mostly small charities, community groups, churches. And it's those groups that provide in the kind of good times, they provide the glue within communities, they build trust between people, they give people opportunities to do yoga classes and painting and toddler groups. It's all of those happy things. But they also often provide a kind of first line of support when things are going wrong for people. So, I mean, most churches these days that I know will be running a food bank. A lot of them have linked up with debt advice charities. You've got community groups we saw during the pandemic, the way the community groups kind of sprang into action faster than a lot of public agencies. And they are so well connected on the ground, they can kind of adapt to what's happening. So they are this kind of often invisible, but this vital glue that kind of goes through communities. But what we're seeing is that those groups are facing the same cost pressures, like small businesses. You know, we've had a lot of things about pubs going out of business or, you know, small businesses. We're not talking about the fact that charities, you know, if you're a charity and you're running a community centre, that could be the only warm place this winter that people can go in that community. But what happens when the charity can't pay their heating bills? What happens when they can't fix the roof? What happens when the food services that Stuart was running, when the volunteers are just seeing petrol prices go up and saying, look, we we can't afford this anymore? Or when food banks can't get the donations because the people who would be donating are themselves feeling the pinch. So you've got this kind of these unseen pressures. And I think, you know, it's kind of the nature of the sector, the charity sector, people find a way, by and large, to make things happen. But when you talk to the people who are running charities, when you talk to the independent food bank network, also to things like mental health charities, they are very seriously worried about how on earth they're going to meet this kind of national emergency that's coming down the track this winter. And we aren't talking about, you know, what support do those groups need to be able to provide those vital services? How are we going to keep them on their feet so they can keep their communities on their feet?
0: Stuart, does that? How does that kind of echo with your experience and your understanding of the situation?
2: Yeah, I mean, it all sounds quite familiar to me. I mean, the, I suppose it was slightly different. I was working for for a local authority. The service that I was done was actually run by the council. But I know, kind of anecdotally, from other organisations around around the city i've done work with uh, like trestle trust and stuff like that at different times through through my work with libraries yeah it's just everybody's being squeezed and like helen said when when the costs of things are going up that affects it affects everybody across the board um you kind of notice in in supermarkets now there was a time when if you went past the food bank donation points that a lot of them have they'd be kind of they'd be overflowing there'd always be things in there it's not really quite the case now you look and there doesn't seem to be as much as much stuff in there like Helen says I think it's that the there are people that the the sort of squeeze is such now that people that would have been able to donate once upon a time now don't feel that they're able to because everybody's being affected you know it isn't it isn't even just people on the lowest incomes that are feeling it when you look at how rapidly the prices of of everything is is rising unless you're in a household that's fairly well off you're going to be feeling it in one way or another whether it's the petrol or the the utility bills and the food I mean even you know speaking from a personal point of view I've got I've got two primary school-age kids and our shopping bill is just week on week it's rocketing it's and it's not going up by a little bit like every time we go and get a week's worth of shopping it's another 10 20 quid and you're thinking man this isn't sustainable for me to keep finding this kind of money and in relative terms my, my income's okay you know but a tenner a week to somebody who's working for for minimum wage or somebody who um to a family that are on benefits that's a huge portion of their income that they're having to find and on a consistent basis as well I think that's the I think that's the biggest worry is the fact that there doesn't really seem to be an end in sight to it so even if it was a case of looking at it and thinking okay well there's going to be some increases and then there'll be a ceiling somewhere and everybody at least we've got something to work with you know whether it's a family or whether you're speaking about a charitable group an organization um, you've at least got something to work with but when it's just going up and up and up and there's nothing Mm. there are no kind of checks and balances there's nothing in place at all to stop that from from happening and that's really really worrying i think
1: yeah i mean there's some work uh pro bono economics did looking at charity incomes over time and what we found was that donations to charity tend to track consumer spending generally they need to track you know what's happening to incomes out in the community and so when we looked at during the pandemic a lot of charities took a big hit to their income because they couldn't fundraise yeah
0: i was also wondering this i mean this idea that that Helen mentioned about that I think was Martin Lewis's kind of term about these as a set of food banks, but also kind of like warmth banks, or like hubs where people can go and be warm. You know, whether that's libraries, you know, or or other charity spaces. Is that something, Stuart, that you're aware of? You know, people kind of preparing for that that libraries, for example, might be a space that people need to come and take refuge from the cold this winter
2: yeah i think i think it's entirely possible in fact i think it's likely um libraries have always served that function in a sense there's always been particularly in kind of big big branches um they've always been kind of a bit of a honeypot for you know kind of street homeless in winter because like you say it's it's a safe place, they're non-judgmental spaces, everybody's welcome in there and if people want to come and sit in a chair by the radiator and read a book, you know, because they've got nowhere else to be and no other way of keeping warm, that's absolutely, you know, that's fine and they're welcome to do that. Um, I think that, I think that it's likely that that'll be on, you know, it'll be on the rise. Um, I've seen some stuff online recently, um, you know, saying that we need to we need to prepare for that um what form that will take i'm not sure um but it it seems that that you know for some people that will be the only way that that they can do it and it's a that's a crazy situation to be in when you know you're going to be warmer in a public space than you are in your own in your own house it's not it shouldn't be a choice that people are having to that people are having to make um, but it's just been, it just seems to be, its being forced on, forced on people at the moment. It's, it's just very mm-hmm. sad.
0: So I guess, you know, moving from the immensity of this kind of crisis to, the, to the, the possible solutions. I mean, Helen, what kind of help do you think that the government should be offering Uh, to support people to cope, you know, we're coming to the end of the Tory leadership contest, we'll soon have a new Prime Minister. What kind of plan should they enact?
2: It feels to me like what's happening at the moment is almost like, um, it's like a perfect storm in a sense. It's a confluence of lots and lots of things that have been, like you said at the beginning, they've been coming for quite a long time. All of the kind of austerity measures where public services have been cut and cut and cut um so when the pandemic hit there were services that local authorities would have been able to rely on previously to help out that weren't there anymore because the funding had gone as that funding's been cut that shifted the kind of burden of care onto charities like we've said and now they're suffering they're suffering as well i think the the biggest thing for me is that it, there just needs to be better regulation for for a lot of these industries, because for all that, there are all these conversations about how are people going to afford gas bills, electric bills, notwithstanding the fact that wholesale costs have gone up, these companies are still posting enormous profits and they're paying massive dividends to shareholders. That can't be right when everybody is suffering, when so many people are suffering in the way that they are doing and in the way that they're gonna to continue to do. It can't be right that, you know, you can post a 50 billion profit and yet say, we can't cut the prices for you, for you guys. Your bills are still going up so that we can pay the shareholders. That's just that's just wrong um, to me. And I think it's just a any time that you put a, a kind of essential public utility like that into private ownership. This is this is what's gonna be the end result because the priority isn't the service. The priority is always paying the dividends to the shareholders and everything else is secondary to that. And I think something that's got to change because until that changes, all of these things are gonna they're all gonna continue to to happen. And again, there's a total lack of social housing. That means that rents are high landlords are constantly profiting because they can buy more houses they can charge exorbitant rents it can cost twice as much to rent a house as it can to pay a mortgage but if you don't have a huge deposit even though you you're paying the rent month on month you're not going to get a mortgage even though you're paying twice twice the twice the rent that you'd pay for your mortgage that there's a lot of work to be done there there really really is and I, i think the last the damage that's been done in the last 10 years and the last four or five particularly i think it's going to take decades to sort it out myself it's a really really bleak picture i think
0: that is all we're going to have time for this morning thanks so much Stuart and helen for joining it's been a real pleasure and despite the bleak topic of conversation it's been really interesting to hear your insights so thank you so much if you've enjoyed this podcast at home then escape the echo chamber and grab a copy of our new issue of prospect magazine or go to subscription.prospectmagazine.co.uk to subscribe in the current issue you'll find writing from sheila hancock rose tremaine malcolm rifkind and many more so thanks very much for joining us goodbye and listen out for the next episode of the prospect podcast next